Exodus 3. The presence of God and the commission of God. The presence of God and the commission of God. Exodus chapter 3. The presence of God and the commission of God. Ready? One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses. Here I am, Moses replied. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your shoes, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites now live. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abuse them. Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. But Moses protested to God, Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? God answered, I will be with you. And this is your sign that I am the one who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. But Moses protested, If I go to the people of Israel and tell them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, What is his name? Then what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. Now go and call together all the elders of Israel. Tell them, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me. He told me, I've been watching closely and I see how the Egyptians are treating you. I've promised to rescue you from your oppression in Egypt. I will lead you to a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites now live. The elders of Israel will accept your message. 
Then you and the elders must go to the king of Egypt and tell him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So please let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand forces him. So I will raise my hand and strike the Egyptians, performing all kinds of miracles among them. Then at last he will let you go. And I will cause the Egyptians to look favorably on you. They will give you gifts when you go, so you will not leave empty-handed. Every Israelite woman will ask for articles of silver and gold and fine clothing from her Egyptian neighbors and from the foreign women in their houses. You will dress your sons and daughters with these, stripping the Egyptians of their wealth. Folks, people all the time imagine what it would be like to encounter God. Uh, listen to one very silly uh, case. It just shows you how far some in the modern day church have gone. This writer says, the, the third time I saw Jesus, when I was about 11 years old, Jesus walked through my front door and sat down beside me while I was watching an episode of Laverne and Shirley. He came over and sat down beside me on the couch, kind of glanced at the TV, and everything in this natural world clicked off. I couldn't hear the telephone or television set. All I heard was Jesus, and all I saw was His glory. He looked at me and said, Roberts, I want you to study the lives of my generals in my great army throughout time. Know them like the back of your hand. Know why they were a success. Know why they failed, and you'll want nothing in that area. He got up, walked back out through the door, the TV clicked back on, and I resumed watching Laverne and Shirley. Unbelievable. This same guy talks about going to heaven and being taken into a warehouse where there were spare hands and arms and feet and legs and different organs and an angel told him, all of this stuff is up here in store. Uh, this, this warehouse ought to be empty if people would just ask. All these body parts just waiting to be used. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. One of the genuine encounters that we have in the Old Testament of somebody seeing God and having an encounter with God would, of course, be that in Isaiah chapter 6. You remember Isaiah 6? What's going on there? You remember? Isaiah's in the temple. The earthly king has died. An earthly king that, for the most part, has brought stability to the nation for 50-plus years. And now... Uzziah is dead. So everybody's wondering, what's our future going to be now? I'm sure Isaiah was worried about that. And what did he see? He saw God high and lifted up and exalted. What's the message there? The true king, the true Lord, is not dead. He's on his throne. He's very much alive. 
Isaiah, you don't need to worry. When Isaiah saw this vision of God, what did he see about himself? He said, woe is me, I am undone. He thought he was going to die. And God, of course, cleansed him. One of the seraphim took a coal from off the altar and touched his lips and said, See, now this has touched your lips and you're clean. And the Lord said, Who shall go for us? And Isaiah said, Here I am. Send me. It was a life-changing encounter. An encounter where Isaiah thought he was going to die because he had seen God. Well, that's similar to what we see here in Exodus chapter 3. Moses had no idea of what was about to happen. For 40 years, he's been tending the flocks of his father-in-law, Jethro, also known as what? Ruel. It was common at this time for people to have more than one name. For 40 years, he's been tending the flocks of his father-in-law. And it's clear as we get into this passage, he has no idea what is about to happen. It is amazing what a day can bring forth. Now, first of all, tonight, if you're taking notes with me, I want you to see the encounter. The encounter from verses 1 to 6. I'm sure this day was a day like any other for Moses. Day after day, year after year, He's been tending Jethro's flocks. Little did he know that God was training him in survival skills for the wilderness where he would be the shepherd of God's people. And so the skills that he's learning now out in the middle of nowhere, out in the wilderness, are skills that are going to come in very handy for him when he leads the Israelites out of Egypt. God is preparing him. Now, folks, as I've said before, it is amazing if you'll look back on your life and see how God maybe prepared you for something that you're doing now that you did not even realize at the time he was getting you ready for. But God was working. Now, I want you to think about how different Moses' life has become from what he would have expected. He's now doing the job that he was probably taught to despise in Egypt. Why do I say that? Because the Egyptians despised shepherds. We're told that at the end of Genesis. And... Here's Moses, he's been brought up in Pharaoh's court, even though he's a Hebrew. So I'm sure, you know, he's been taught to despise shepherds, and now he's doing the very task that he was taught to despise. Moses has been humbled, hadn't he? Think about how God works here also. Maybe, just maybe, Moses might have grown up with some pride being raised the way he was in Pharaoh's household. So not only is 
God equipping Moses physically to do the job that he is about to give to him, but also God is instilling some humility in Moses. Folks, if there's human pride in us, that will limit what God wants to do. He will deal with that pride. Now, verse 1 tells us that on this particular day, Moses went far into the wilderness. Why do you think it's highlighted that he went far into the wilderness? Well, it's probably just the fact that herdsmen back then, especially those with large flocks, in a wilderness and desert climate like then, would have to keep going far and wide to be able to find grass and foliage to support their herds. So they would have to keep going out more and more and more and further and further and further looking for food for their flocks. Now on this particular day, something catches Moses' attention. A bush is on fire. Now in a desert climate, a bush burning may not have been too awfully unusual, but what was different this time is that the bush was not being consumed. You may have read before in history about Philo, the Jewish philosopher who was from Alexandria, Egypt. Uh, he, gave, he gave an allegorical spin to this burning bush. He saw it as the suffering of Israel in Egypt under slavery. He said Israel is the bush and they're being consumed day by day with suffering but never being destroyed just like this bush. Being subjected to the flames but not destroyed. So he interpreted this allegorically. What's amazing about this encounter with God is what we always see in the Bible. Who initiates an encounter with God? God does. God is always the initiator. Because as Paul says in Romans chapter 3 in that famous passage where we learn that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, what's Paul say there? There are none who are seeking after God. And he emphasizes it. He says, no, not even one. There's no one in their natural state seeking after God. Ephesians chapter 2 says the very same thing. And so if we are to know God God must initiate. Folks, this is pure grace. It's like when he went after Adam, after Adam and Eve sinned, and God was going after Adam and Eve saying, where are you? I want you to understand something very, very important. God would not have to save anybody. If God saves even just one 
That's grace and mercy. Folks, do we understand that? No one gets injustice. Even those who die without Christ, do they get injustice from God? No. They just simply get what everybody deserves. They get judgment. But they did not get injustice because God is not unjust. Some receive mercy, some don't. Paul in Romans 9 talks about this. He quotes the Lord saying, I will show mercy on whomever I will show mercy. Paul's discussing Jacob and Esau there. Jacob whom he loved and chose and Esau whom he rejected and hated. Somebody says, but that's unfair. Well, folks, if you want fair, then every single person gets judgment if you want fair. If you want fair, nobody gets salvation. I want you to understand God does not owe anybody mercy. The Bible is clear that God is not a debtor to any man. And Scripture is just as clear that when somebody receives mercy... It's not because they did anything that God had to in turn respond to. Paul says before the twin boys were even born and had done nothing either good or bad, God chose Jacob and rejected Esau. Paul goes out of his way in Romans 9 to point out, to to make clear that, that God doesn't show grace and mercy to people on the basis of what he knows that they will either do or not do. And that's not simply one kind of theology as opposed to another kind of theology. Folks, that's Bible. That's just simply Bible, plain and simple. God doesn't show grace and mercy to people on the basis of what he knows they will either do or not do. I don't want anybody to go home looking in their bathroom mirror and thinking, yeah, God saved me because look at me. Boy, he saw something great in me. That, That would be a denial of pure grace. Folks, I'm concerned that in the modern church we have many who talk a good talk about grace and mercy, and yet there's this little inkling of thought in some people that God must have seen something in us that made us deserve salvation. You will not find that in Scripture. In fact, It was that attitude in part that led Jesus to tell the Pharisees that they were in danger of missing the kingdom of God because they thought there was something inherent in them. I think of other encounters people had with God. I've already mentioned Isaiah. There was also Abraham with the smoking fire pot. You remember that in Genesis 17? Who else? There was Jacob. There was Jacob, 
wrestling with the angel of the Lord. Later on, once the Hebrews are free from Egypt, what's God going to do? How are they going to encounter God? How's God going to lead them? The cloud by day and the fire by night. Yes. Now, notice what happens when God calls to Moses. First of all, he knows Moses by name. God knows you and even has the hairs on your head counted. Moses responds by saying what? Here am I. We're intended to see in that a willingness, surrender. Moses understands that something amazing is happening. Now folks, when God calls, the only response you and I should ever make is here I am. God tells Moses to take his shoes off for he's standing on holy ground. Now, interestingly enough, later on when the priestly attire is spelled out in great detail, what the priest were to wear in the tabernacle and then after the tabernacle, the temple, and each piece of their garments is pointed out, there was no attire given for the feet. Some have interpreted that, that the priest were to carry on their priestly duties barefoot. Because in the tabernacle or in the temple, they would be on holy ground. But folks, anywhere God is, it's what? It's holy ground. Then notice what God does. God identifies himself. He's not some kind of deity who belongs to the Midianites. You know, since Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, was a Midianite, he's not just some god for the Midianites. He's not some Egyptian god. He's the only god. He's the true and the living god. He's the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the only god. Now, notice what Moses does next. He covers his face. He knows what? He knows that God is too holy to even look upon. Now folks, what does this say to us about our worship today? How do we approach God? How do we worship? Reverently. If I could have my way, when we enter the sanctuary, there would be a time that we would all sit quietly and meditate for a few minutes on God. The time of worship is not simply a time to catch up with friends. Now, fellowship's important, and there's a place for that. But once worship begins, it's not time for a social party. We're in the presence of God. Folks, this is not an argument for one style of worship over another style. I'm not talking about mere preferences of men and women that constantly change through the years and generations. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about something that transcends your style preferences. 
I'm talking about realizing that you're in the presence of Almighty God. We are on holy ground. God is not to be treated like our next door neighbor. You know, Brother Joe, huh, let me slap you on the back and laugh. God's not to be treated like that. You look anywhere in the Bible where people encountered God, where they were in the presence of God, and there was fear, there was reverence. I mean, just look at the passage uh, that precedes where God gave the Ten Commandments. The people were scared to death. They were in fear. They were reverential. They thought they would die. Now, God's made it possible for us to go into His presence through Jesus Christ. But still, there was always this attitude of reverential fear. We're not to treat worship of God as though it's some soccer game or football game or NASCAR race. That's not to be the atmosphere in our worship. Well, secondly, what I want you to see with me tonight is the message of hope. Verses 7 to 9, the message of hope. What does God say in these verses? The Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I'm aware of their suffering, so I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians. Look again at those phrases. You may want to underline them in in your copy of the Scripture. I have seen, I have heard, I am aware, so I've come down to rescue. Underline all of those phrases. This should give hope to the people of God. He sees your trials. He cares. And beyond simply caring, He's able to do something about it. God is not an impotent God who is at the mercy of human suffering. God doesn't say, I see and I care, but it's out of my hands. No. Because there's nothing out of God's hands. Amen? God said here that He was going to rescue them, but that that was only part of the story. What's He say next? Not only He's going to rescue them, but what's He going to do? He's going to lead them to their own land. And it's not just any land. What's He say? It's a good land flowing with milk and honey. In the Hebrew, the emphasis is on the fact that it is a good land, it is a fruitful land, it is a broad land. It is all of the above. It's like God is saying to them, I've got the perfect place picked out just for you. 
Somebody says, but God, you've said here that the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites live there now. God essentially says, hey, no problem. I've got this covered. It might be their land now, but I'm going to drive them out. I'm going to drive them out, and I'm going to give you this land. That's the message of hope. I see. I care. I'm aware, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to lead you out, I'm going to deliver you, and I'm going to give you your own land. It's going to be a good land. And the fact that it's occupied now isn't going to be one bit of a challenge for me. Thirdly, let's look at Moses' protest. Picking up there in verse 10 where he says, Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. In verse 11, But Moses protested to God, Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? So here's God again saying, I've heard, I've seen, I'm aware, I'm going to rescue now I'm going to send you. Now, Moses might have been fine with everything until God said that. And when God said, now I'm going to send you, Moses says, now wait a minute, God, who am I? And I want you to notice twice Moses says that. Who am I? Who's Moses got his eyes fixed upon? Himself. What does God do? He has Moses change his focus. He says, Moses, I, I will be with you. In other words, Moses, don't worry about yourself and your own inadequacies. All you need to worry about, Moses, is that you keep your eyes on me. Folks, if we could do just that right there, it would solve our excuses, wouldn't it? Because in our excuses, what are we doing? We're looking at man. We're looking at ourselves. But what's faith do? Faith looks to God. Excuses look to man. Faith looks to God. Do you have excuses or do you have faith? It's interesting what God does next. God says this will be a sign for you. And then God points out when they're rescued, they will worship him on that very mountain. In other words, evidence that this is God will be when Pharaoh and the Egyptians turn them loose. There's no way in human reasoning that Pharaoh is going to turn loose of his slave labor. There is no human reasoning that the Egyptians are going to give the Hebrews their silver and gold. If something like that happens, Moses and the Israelites will know for certain that it is God who's done it. Only God's going to be able to deliver them. 
Only God's going to be able to make Pharaoh and the Egyptians say, get out of here. Only God's going to make the Egyptians say, hey, take our gold and silver. Take whatever you want. Get out of here. They will know when all this happens and they get back to this mountain that God's done all this. You see, folks, when, when we... We, we want to know the will of God like a road map, don't we? God, do this, do that, show me this, show me that. And that's not the way God works, is it? This may in part be why Paul says what he says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. What's Paul say? In light of the mercies of God, present your bodies, what? A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then what? Then you will be able to prove what the will of God is. We want the shortcut. God, show me now. Lay everything out for me now. Then I will decide if it's you or not. God says, no, I'm not playing that game. You surrender now. You present yourself as a living sacrifice. You allow me to transform you. You quit conforming to the ways of the world. And then I will make clear to you what my will is. We've got it upside down. We say, God, give me all the evidence first. But God says, no, I'll give all that to you last. It really comes down to faith. Do we really believe God is who He says He is and that He's able to do what He says He's able to do? God plainly lets Moses know that this is not going to be instant. He lets Moses know that Moses will need to talk to the elders. And then what's Pharaoh going to do? They're going to go before Pharaoh. Pharaoh's going to refuse. Then what's God going to do? God's going to do all these miracles. And then what? The Egyptians are going to drive them away. In other words, God is not calling Moses under false pretense that Moses will get back to Egypt, tell the Israelites what he needs to tell them, tell Pharaoh what he needs to tell him, and everybody says, oh, okay, yeah, y'all go and have fun. I'll let you go. Let me know if you need anything else. It's not going to happen that way at all. God lays it all out from Moses and tells him what it's going to be like so that nobody can ever say, so that Moses can never say that God called him under false pretense. It's like Jesus tells us. No one can be my disciple unless what? 
He denies himself, picks up his cross, and follows me. If a man's going to follow me, he's got to hate father and mother and brother and sister and child and even his own life. And if he's not willing to do that, he's not worthy to be my disciple. Nobody can ever say God calls us under false pretense. Saying that it's going to be easy. But again, Moses will have, what kind of assurance will Moses have? He's going to have the assurance that God is going to be with him. And how does God reveal himself to him? He reveals himself to Moses with his covenant name. I am who I am, or I will be what I will be. In other words, Moses, I will be everything that you will ever need. This particular name reveals that there is never any lack of sufficiency in God. There's never any lack of power in God. God is always more than enough for his people. Moses, the Israelites, Pharaoh, the Egyptians are soon going to learn that there is no power in the universe that can match Yahweh. Pharaoh and the Egyptians are nothing compared to God. And that's what they're going to see. Amen? God sees. He cares. He knows. And He's able to do what He says He will do. And you and I can rest assured of the same. He keeps His word. He keeps His promises. And He will be with us. We can count on Him. And there's no power on earth equal to Him. Amen?